Uh, New Year's resolutions. I don't know whether you're someone who makes New Year's resolutions or not. That decision to start, to, to change your life, to make a fresh start. Now, it normally comes uh, from some sort of problem, uh, you know, pain or discontent. Maybe there's a health scare, so you're going to go on a health kick. Or maybe there's some poor exam results and you say, all right, I'm going to try better. I'm going to try harder this year at uni or school. Maybe a midlife crisis. You know, I'm going to quit my job and take up pottery. Or, or maybe uh, there's, you know, relationship difficulties, friends, friendships, and you think, no, nah, I've got to work on my friendship, my marriage, whatever it might be. You make that decision to start again. Uh, make the most of the new year uh, and begin with new decisions and a new plan and a new commitment. And that's what we have here with the Jews in Jerusalem. They've been brought from slavery and exile from Babylon, they've returned to the promised land, they've rebuilt the temple, but then they got distracted. Uh, it, it stalled for something like 70 years, but then Nehemiah came along and he got them organised. Uh, at the end of chapter 7, where we finished last week, things are looking pretty good. The, the walls are rebuilt, the people are settled in their towns and, and the non-Israelites have been expelled. They're, they're attempting to purify their, their bloodlines. But they're still slaves. They're still under Persia's control. Uh, they're sending their taxes and their tribute back there. They're not free to govern themselves. And they're feeling the pain of that. And it seems like they've recognised the cause, uh, the blockage to the problem. It, it's their relationship with God. Their rebellion and sin, the continual breaking of their covenant. That's what caused all the problems in the first place, their exile and slavery. Now, the city's been tidied up, the, the membership roles have been tidied up, but what about on the inside? What about repentance? Are they actually ready for a genuine new beginning? That's got to be the first step. Everything depends on a genuine change of heart. We've been looking for it since Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. Will we get it now? Well, chapter 8, verse 1, just like we do with our New Year's resolutions, the Jews pick their New Year's Day to make a fresh start. Uh, the chapter begins on the first day of the seventh month. Now we might say, why is the seventh month the new year? But I don't know the answer to that, but it, it's the Jewish new year. It's called Rosh Hashanah, even today. Now, this turns out to be an extraordinary day. Everyone is gathered in the main square to hear Ezra, the scribe, read from the law. Now notice firstly that there's a real sense of unity over the whole people. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that the people assembled as one man. And as you read through the passage in chapter 8, you see the same phrase over and over again. All the people, all the people, they're united for one reason, to hear the word of God. Now, verse 2, have a look at it. It seems like a summary. It describes the whole day. Ezra brings out the book of the law of Moses. He stands up on a huge wooden platform at daybreak and he starts reading until noon. Now, a lot of you think uh, these days church is too long if it goes for longer than an hour. <laughs> but Ezra begins at daybreak, begins in the book of Genesis probably, then he gets to Exodus, it's half past nine, then the book of Leviticus and Numbers, it's 11 o'clock, everyone's ready for a coffee break, but no, he, he keeps ploughing on into Deuteronomy, the law they were given before they came into the land. Deuteronomy describing the blessings if they kept it, the law, the curses if they didn't. That's two to four. 
Now, from verse 5, it seems to do the newspaper article thing. It, it gives you the summary in the first paragraph, and then from verse 5, it seems to go back and expand on that uh, and give you some of the detail. So, verse 5, we read, Ezra opens the book, and all the people stand up. They're expectant. Their body language is saying, yep, I'm ready to hear, I'm ready to act. And then verse 6, Ezra begins by praising the Lord, the great God, and all the people lift their hands and they respond, Amen, Amen. And then they bow down. They worship the Lord. Their bodies once again expressing their willingness to be in submission to God. But they're not just reading it. Uh, the Levites, you can see their names recorded in verse 7. Bill had a stab at them, you know, uh, their names. Uh, the, the Levites are instructing the people in the law, verse 8. Uh, or maybe it's translating it. D- depending on which version you're reading, it sort of leans towards uh, explaining or, or maybe translating and explaining so that people can understand it. But whichever it is, they do understand it. God's word like an x-ray, has shown them exactly what they're like. And it's not a pretty sight. Uh, Just like that shin bone on that x-ray. That looked painful, didn't it? (laughs) Well, God's word has set the standard and the people have realised how far short they feel, uh, they fall. Verse 9, when they hear it, they're convicted, they're cut to the heart. They understand its relevance, its accuracy, its implications... And they weep and mourn. And it looks like a case of genuine remorse. But is it? Is there going to be a real change of behaviour or are these just empty words and empty actions? You've got to remember this is New Year's Day and we all know how most New Year's resolutions turn out, don't we? They last till about January the 10th if you're lucky. But at this point, Nehemiah stops them. The words have been said, the tears have been spilled because New Year's Day, at least according to the law they've just read, is a very special day. It's a day to celebrate, a day to joyfully remember God bringing them out of captivity. When Moses led them through the Red Sea and then they camped in the wilderness in tents. And so the book of Leviticus says that the Israelites are to remember that, to celebrate it with the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. And what they had to do was reenact that. They had to cut down branches and make little shelters and then camp in them as a reminder of the days in the wilderness. And so verse 16, that's what everyone does. And then verse 17, they build their booths and everyone lives in them. Just imagine it, little leafy huts scattered all over Jerusalem in every flat spot they can find. And people are camping in them and they're celebrating with good food and good drinks. And we're told that there's never been anything like it since the days of Joshua. Which, at one extreme, it could mean they've never celebrated the feast, which I'm I'm not sure that's what it means. It could also mean that they've never celebrated with that same sense of joy or or knowledge of God's law. Or maybe it just means that this is the first time everyone's gathered together in the one place, where they were all together united. Uh, But it really does seem as if the people are ready to make a fresh start. It seems as if they've been convicted of how far they've wandered from God and they're determined to do better. 
Verse 18, the party goes on for a whole week. But we need to keep asking the question, will it stick? Is there sorrow, true repentance? Or is it just appearances? We'll jump forward into chapter 9. We didn't read it, but we're going to sort of skim through it now. Perhaps we'll find the answer there. It describes another great gathering three weeks later, uh, same month, verse 1, they're fasting and they're wearing sackcloth now. Now these are signs of repentance. They're signs of remorse. We've seen the tears in chapter 8. Well, now we've got the fasting and the sackcloth. Verse 2 tells us they've separated themselves from the foreigners. We're determined to, to get rid of the bad influences in our life. And it says they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Well, so far so good. Perhaps the people are finally ready to learn the lessons from history. Because they've broken God's law, they know that as a people, they've broken it again and again. And then from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, we actually get, in inverted commas, the prayer that the people prayed. And this is, if you like, it's a summary of Israel's history. It's one very long prayer that lists all the great things God has done and the way that the people have responded by insulting him and doing the opposite of what God's done for them. It's a remarkable description that says over and over, first God blesses them, then they turn away and show they don't deserve it, then God forgives them and blesses them again, even though they don't deserve it, but they sin again, and then God forgives them. It just says it again and again. Uh, Look from verse 7, God chose Abram, made his covenant with him. Why? He kept his promise because he's righteous. Then he brought his people out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai, verse 13. He gave them just laws and decrees and commands. He gave them manna and water. But what did they do, verse 16? They became arrogant and stiff-necked and didn't obey your commands. Still God doesn't give up on them, verse 17. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. They deserved it, but you didn't. Blessing after blessing, verse 19 all the way through to verse 25. Even when they're in the promised land, when they're living in peace, verse 26, they're still disobedient and rebellious. They put God's law behind their backs. You know, when someone turns their back on you, it really says something, doesn't it? We don't want to listen. And when God handed them over to their enemies for punishment, they cried out to him. Verse 27, he forgave them again and rescued them. Verse 28, time after time, we're told. Verse 30, he's patient with them. He sends prophets to correct them, but they paid no attention. Finally, verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. Why? For you are a gracious and merciful God. And then finally, we get down to verse 33, the lesson that they've learned from history, and it sums the whole thing up. In all that's happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully, while we did wrong. There's the summary. Now that's their prayer. Verse 2 describes it as a prayer of repentance. 
And behind it all, I guess they're saying, that was our ancestors, but we are going to be different. We've learned the lesson. This time, we're going to get it right. This time, we're going to be obedient. Now, on the surface, it looks like a fine prayer, but I want to suggest that if you look a little closer, it's not so correct. And I think what's significant is what is not said. What is not said. Notice firstly exactly what they repent of. There's certainly plenty of recognising the sins of other people, of their fathers, but actually repenting of their own sin, it's pretty hard to find. Back in verse 2, in the summary statement, it says they confess their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Verse 3 says they spent a quarter of the day in confession. But that's Nehemiah's description of their prayer. If you actually look at the prayer itself, there's not a lot of actual confession. I I think the closest you can find is there in verse 33. The summary at the end. Verse 33. In all that's happened to us, you've been just, you've acted faithfully while we did wrong. But even there, the we is talking about the whole people rather than the present generation. Because the very next verse goes on to say, we did wrong, our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers did not follow your law. So it seems to me as if they're they're actually not confessing their own sin, they're they're recognising sin in the past but not owning it themselves. The second reason I think it's perhaps not a great example of a prayer of confession is what the prayer actually asks for. What's the point of the prayer? They recognise the sin of the nation, but they don't actually ask for forgiveness. They don't actually ask for forgiveness. Yes, we did wrong. We were terrible. But that's it. The only thing they actually ask God for is there in verse 32. Have a look at verse 32. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, here's the request, the only request... Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that's come upon us. What are they asking? They're actually saying, we are struggling because of how you punished our fathers. We're back in the land, but we're suffering. This is is a big deal for us. Don't overlook it. That sort of expands the, the description of what it's, life's like for them a bit further on in verse 36. But see, God, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies, our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Now that's the end of the prayer. They're in the land, but they're slaves. They're not really free at all. The wealth they're building goes to someone else. They're in great distress and they long for God to do something. That's what the prayer is asking. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it or not, but it it seems like their suffering matters more to them than the fact they've sinned against God. They're asking for relief, not forgiveness. They're asking for life to be better, not for their relationship with God to be restored. It seems like the blessings of the promised land are more important than the blessings of being right with God. 
Their sin is only a problem because of how it has messed up the good life they wanted. Now, if you go through the prayer, I reckon uh, you can see their focus on the the good things of the promised land by how many times it's mentioned, that the promised land is mentioned in their prayer. So verse 8, you made a covenant with Abraham to give him the land. Verse 15, you told them to go in and take possession of the land you'd sworn to give them. Verse 23, you brought them into the land you'd told their fathers to possess. Verse 25, a land of fortified cities, houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. Verse 35, even while our fathers were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. It seems to me that it's the promised land that matters most to these people, not the God who gave the land to them. They're acknowledging the sin of their people, perhaps even confessing it, but is that the same as repentance? And what about their own sin? They're weeping as the law is read, but the question is, is that a genuine repentance or is it just sadness at their situation? Is it a sadness at the consequences of their sin and what they're having to bear and what they've missed out on? Well, we'll need to see how the story ends to see if I'm reading this correctly or not, to see whether their their repentance is genuine. You see, there is a difference between godly sorrow that leads to true repentance and worldly sorrow that's just upset at where your choices have landed you. Now, that's a difference the Apostle Paul uh, presents. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he, he, he talks about a former letter he wrote to the Corinthians and how he rebuked them and how they were sorrowful. And Paul started off being sad that he'd made them sad. But, but then he rejoiced because he realised that their sorrow had actually led to repentance. So he says this, uh, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 9, For you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. Sorrowful as God intended. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, worldly sorrow is self-centred. Worldly sorrow focuses on what's gone wrong in your life. Yes, I made bad choices and look how I'm suffering for it. What you don't have. How you're not the centre of things the way you would like. Worldly sorrow leads to death, not life. It leads away from God, not towards him. But here, Paul identifies something called godly sorrow. Which sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It sounds like a contradiction. Sounds like something God wouldn't want. But the reality is, we are to be content in every situation. But at the same time, we're also to have a godly discontent. A sorrow that things are not the way they should be. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs was an English Puritan. He wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 
And he made this astute observation. He said, a Christian is the most contented man in the world and yet the most unsatisfied man in the world. What did he mean by that? Well, he goes on to say, a Christian should be unsatisfied with at least three things. Firstly, we should be unsatisfied with our limited knowledge and love of God. We should strive to know him better, to love him more deeply. The more we know and love God, the greater our desire is to know him better. We are satisfied with him, but we also want to know and love and be satisfied with him more and more. Psalm 42 uh, begins, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So there's to be a godly unsatisfaction, discontent uh, with our knowledge of God. Secondly, we're to be unsatisfied because the world is a broken place. We we, We should be groaning along with creation itself. Creation's longing to be set free. We should be discontent that the world mostly live in rebellion to God. They fail to love and acknowledge him. We should long for Jesus to be known. We should be discontented about that. Thirdly, we should be unsatisfied with our own personal lack of godliness. Yes, we're forgiven, but we are still broken people. We are all works in progress. It is a truth universally known that the more you grow in godliness, the more you realise how much further you have to grow. Isn't that true? How far you still have to go. In what areas of your life is God calling you to show a godly sorrow? A godly discontent? In what areas and what aspects of your character, your life situation, your relationship with God, does he want you to be discontented and motivated to move? Remains to be seen what type of sorrow the Jews will actually have. Will it be godly or worldly? So what about their prayer? In lots of ways it's a great prayer. Did God actually answer it? All the way through they'd been reminding God about how, how uh, blessed they, uh, how he blessed them even though they didn't deserve it and how merciful he was and how he always kept his side of the covenant even when they broke theirs. So will God do that again? Will he answer their prayer? Will he not let their hardship seem trifling in his eyes? Well, the short answer is yes. He did answer their prayer. He does it again. He, once again, he acts consistently with his character and he rescues them from enemies and from slavery. But it took a long time. It took hundreds of years, in fact. And it was a very different sort of rescue from what they were imagining. It was far greater. Because they remained under Persia's rule until Persia was conquered by Greece. And then they remained slaves under Greece until Greece was conquered by Rome. And then finally, God sent Jesus. God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died in the place of sinners, who was raised victorious and in the process defeated 
not Persia or Greece or Rome, but sin and death. And brought his people into freedom and joy and blessing, not abundant fruit trees, but abundant life. Not brought into the freedom of dug wells, but instead the living water of God's spirit. Not the shelter of city walls, but the shelter of God's mercy. Not deliverance from taxes, but deliverance from the price of sin, death and judgment. How good and righteous and merciful is God, and we are not. Let me borrow some words from the prayer in chapter 9 as we close. Blessed blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. In all that's happened to us, you've been just, you've acted faithfully, and we've done wrong. Amen.